0: WebMD's Health Discovered podcast. I'm Dr. Neha Bhattak. Today, we're looking at how to protect our health from everyday chemicals in our environment. As a primary care doctor and mom who has an interest in environmental health, I like to make sure that when I'm talking to my patients about any new concern in the exam room, there's two things that we address. Number one, with everything there is to worry about in the world and in our lives, Do I need to add this new concern to my list? And number two, if I do need to add it to my list, what's the best way to take action instead of just feeling fearful and overwhelmed? And I'm thinking that this really tracks with the average American adult who is using 12 personal care products every day, which averages to an exposure of over 120 chemicals And that's just from the personal care products that we're putting on our skin. I'm really excited to have this discussion with our guest, Christina Marusik. She's an award-winning journalist at Environmental Health Sciences, which publishes Environmental Health News. She's also the author of a new book called, A New War on Cancer, The Unlikely Heroes Revolutionizing Prevention. Welcome to the WebMD Health Discovered Podcast, Christina. Hi, I'm so excited to be here. Thank you so much for joining us. So in an effort to make sure that we're really thinking about environmental health in a way that's productive, rather than just something else to create worry in our lives, I really, really want to unpack a bunch of different topics. So hopefully we get to address a lot of things today. But before that, I'd like to just figure out your aha moment. What brought you to this work? when my younger sister, Abby was 25 years old, she was diagnosed
1: with thyroid cancer. And 25 is very young for a cancer diagnosis. I'm two years older than her. So I was also young at the time. And thyroid cancer tends to run in families, but no one else in our family ever had it before. And no one has had it since. So her doctors said, you know, that could mean that something she was exposed to and the environment might've played a role. But when we went looking for information about that, we really had a hard time finding anything that was informative or useful to us. And her doctors kind of didn't really have help or answers either at the time. And I'm also an investigative reporter. And so I was still thinking about this when I wrote a five-part series on cancer and the environment in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, where my sister and I live. And that reporting very directly led to my book. So the series won a couple of awards and I got a nice note from a publisher saying, would you be interested in expanding this into a book with a more national focus? And through the process of writing the book, I learned a lot more about this issue and have been able to make a lot of additional adjustments in my life to try and reduce my exposure to chemicals that can raise my cancer risk. And my sister is doing great today. She had her thyroid removed and she's been in remission for more than a decade. She has two super cute little kids who I hang out with often.
0: I'm so happy to hear that she's doing well and that it was discovered early and that it's really changed the trajectory of your career and what you're interested in reporting about. You know, it's interesting because in the exam room and medical school, we don't really learn very much about environmental health. So it's not necessarily something that a lot of doctors or health professionals feel comfortable bringing up in the exam room. And I think some of that, like you said, is changing. As a primary care doctor, if my main goal is prevention, I really have to think about the environment as a key piece where we can intervene potentially. The way I sort of break it down in my mind, and I would love your thoughts on this, is if we're thinking about anything that's coming in contact with our body. So air, what we're breathing in, water, what we're drinking, contaminants on food when we're eating, and then skin. So personal care products and any other sort of product that touches our skin.
1: That's exactly right. Yep. Those are all the ways that chemicals and substances from our environment, from the outside world can make their ways into our bodies. So those are exactly the pathways we need to think about and talk about when we talk about environmental health.
0: That's really helpful. So if we can kind of categorize it into these four different ways that chemicals can enter our body, I'd love to start with just thinking about action in our sphere of influence. So maybe just starting in our homes before we get to our communities and wider and wider spheres of influence. So let's start with our skin. How do you advise, or in your reporting, what are ways that we can think about, one, what are the risks? So what are the actual risks of some of these chemicals? What are the most common chemicals that we are being exposed to with these various products? Let's start there and then I'll get into my next few questions. Sounds good.
1: Yeah. So when it comes to chemicals we absorb through our skin, most of that happens through our use of personal care products, which you mentioned. So things like lotion and makeup and hair care. And you can kind of think of that the stuff that stays in contact with your skin the longest is what you're being the most exposed to. If you're going to prioritize which products to switch out for less toxic, healthier versions, I always advise that people start with the things that stay on your skin the longest. So the lotion that you put on in the morning or before bed, makeup that stays on your skin all day, and then maybe lower on the list are things like shampoo that gets rinsed off relatively quickly. There are a couple of chemicals of concern that show up in these products. The biggest category is what are known as endocrine-disrupting chemicals, and that includes things like parabens and phthalates. Sometimes more and more you'll see like lotion or shampoo advertised as paraben or phthalate-free. Those chemicals are endocrine disruptors. So they hijack our body's natural hormonal processes. And that can cause all kinds of health problems. It can cause problems with um, our metabolism and our ability to regulate our weight. They can cause issues with fertility and our ability to have healthy offspring. And uh, research increasingly suggests that they can increase our risk for hormone-related cancers, so things like breast cancer and prostate cancer, since they interfere with our hormonal systems. Cosmetics sometimes also contain heavy metals. They can be contaminated by asbestos if they use talc, and those can be Tricky to look for on ingredient lists. There's also kind of a problem here where things aren't always listed in detail. So for example, fragrances often contain phthalates to make them last longer. And sometimes a very long ingredient list on, you know, a bottle of lotion will just say at the very end, fragrance. And that single line item on the list can actually contain like hundreds of additional ingredients that aren't listed. So the way that I have found is easiest to work on lowering the toxicity. The chemicals in your skincare products. And the way I've kind of worked on this personally is instead of freaking out and throwing away everything I own, I wait until I'm about to run out of something. And then I use that as an opportunity to pick a non toxic upgrade. And there are a couple of really good resources online that can help you do that. The one I personally like best is the Environmental Working Group's Healthy Living app. They're a nonprofit that does their own laboratory testing of products and then ranks them based on whether they contain a long list of potentially harmful ingredients. And that app will let you scan a barcode in the grocery store and they have a pretty big database, but I actually find it easier to do it by category. So if I'm about to be out of shampoo and I want to find a non-toxic shampoo, I just go to the app and type in shampoo and pick one they verified as this is free of all that bad stuff. And that tends to be a pretty straightforward way for people to go about it. So you don't have to become an expert in all of these ingredients and how to look for
0: them. Yeah, that's great. I definitely use that. I mean, that is one of the tools that I use religiously. And it's interesting because a lot of what you're saying brings me back to sort of cultural norms for using these products too. So, when I grew up, my parents just didn't use this stuff. We didn't really use deodorant. We didn't use a lot of lotions. The shampoos and conditioners we used, my mom, not that this is necessarily safer, but she bought like quote unquote natural products in like the Indian grocery store, which I don't know, I worry about various chemicals there too. But if he ever used deodorant, I just remember my dad putting it on the outside like on his shirt. He'd be like, "Oh, that's good enough." And it's just very different culturally now. So I understand why my daughter or, you know, her friends want to use these products, because that's just part of what everyone is doing. So I love that you've provided us with a safer alternative. So a place that we can look because it's really hard to unpack and figure out, well, what does fragrance mean? And how do I make sure that this is a safe fragrance? And something I had learned is that if it says fragrance, it's almost better not to use it just because it's so difficult to understand what's in there.
1: Yeah. One easy swap that I've made is just generally trying to pick the fragrance-free version of things because there's this weird loophole. The reason that you can just say fragrance on an ingredient list and not list all the specific ingredients in that fragrance is from this long ago policy that was based on trying to protect like perfume makers protect their proprietary processes. Now, of course, It's very easy to reverse engineer fragrance and you can buy cheap knockoff versions of every expensive perfume. But when this was put in place, people who manufactured companies that manufactured perfume were very concerned that everyone would just copy their formula if the list was put out. So it's something we should change. It needs to be fixed in the regulatory landscape for sure. But in the meantime, yeah, it's really easy to just kind of avoid stuff that includes fragrance. A lot of that stuff can be like allergens So, you know, just generally less risky for asthma and eczema
0: and allergies and potentially lower cancer risk. So I love that. So that's a great tool for us to think about all of these sort of products that we're putting on our skin. I love that you said you don't have to empty your countertops and everything right away. You can go product by product and slowly minimize your risk. So that is super helpful. So Let's move on to water. What should we be thinking about in terms of risks from our tap water and how to protect ourselves?
1: Unfortunately, in the United States, we have not updated our federal tap water regulations in 20 to 40 years for most of the regulations we have in place. And so that means we can have a lot of unregulated contaminants in our drinking water, including a handful that we know are carcinogens. And that includes things like PFAS, P-F-A-S, that stands for per- and polyfluoralkyl substances. Those are also referred to as forever chemicals because they don't break down naturally in the environment or in human bodies over time. So they can build up and cause problems, including increasing our cancer risk. And there was recently a national study that found PFAS in 45% of American tap water, which is, you know, nearly half of us. There's also a long list of disinfection byproducts. These are things that occur when chemicals that are in our source water mix, combine with the chemicals they use to disinfect tap water and create new chemicals, some of which are Carcinogens, and there are things like arsenic and hexavalent chromium. Hexavalent chromium was made pretty famous by Aaron Brockovich, but that turns up in um, American tap water. Unfortunately, that movie being made with Julia Roberts did not entirely solve the problem of hexavalent chromium. So, the good news is there are really good home filters that take out just about all this stuff, but it is a good idea to filter your home tap water with a really good high quality filter. And a group of researchers recently did a test of a whole bunch of filters to see which ones removed, you know, the most of these kind of contaminants of concern. They had a specific focus on PFAS because PFAS are kind of turning up everywhere right now. And they found two filters, home pitcher filters that work really well for these chemicals. The first one is zero filter. And the second one was called clearly filtered. And those two filters take out, I think they took out like 99% to 100% of PFAS in the tests that they did. So I would recommend filtering your home water just for peace of mind, you know, without extensive testing, we don't all get to know exactly what's in our home water. Group I mentioned before, Environmental Working Group, they actually do a really cool national tap water database. It's called Environmental Working Group Tap Water Database is how you would find it. And that lets you put in your zip code. And it'll pull up all of the contaminants that have been publicly reported in your tap water. And then it'll also show you which water filters would take out those particular contaminants.
0: That's great. And that's really helpful, again, because that solution, I think a lot of times we think about these water filters, especially the large ones that someone else come and install. It just these costs can really add up. But it's a great point to make sure the filter you're using is actually filtering for the chemicals that are found in your tap water. So I am going to immediately walk, not run, to check out this resource after our talk. (laughs) Then moving on to just bottled water. I see a lot of people sort of choosing bottled water as an option because they're concerned about tap water which in and of itself is concerning because now you're thinking of all these plastics and microplastics. And so that concerns me. What have you learned in your investigations about the difference between tap water, bottled water, and then is it just better to use a filter at home?
1: I think it is better to just use a filter at home for the most part. A lot of tap water still has contaminants in it, unfortunately, because our regulations around tap water You can essentially just kind of like bottle tap water and sell it in the United States. We don't have very stringent regulations about how that gets filtered. I know that Researchers at Johns Hopkins University recently looked for PFAS and tap water to see if they were turning up there, and they found them in 39 out of about 100 bottled waters they tested. They did find that bottled water labeled purified was less likely to contain PFAS than bottled water that was labeled spring water. That might not be true for other contaminants, though, which is why maybe buying one of these really high quality filters using your refillable bottle might be a better bet. And then also, a big source of our exposure to harmful chemicals also comes through our contact with plastics. And as we all know, we all have microplastics in our bodies now, and they're in our oceans and in the food stream. So, to the extent that you can minimize your use of plastic and your contact with plastic, I think that's generally better for all of us, too.
0: You know, what's so interesting about this is also because it's hard to know. There's so many different types of contaminants. So it just is almost sometimes overwhelming to think, well, am I filtering for this? Or am I, you know, I'm focusing on PFAS, but what about this other chemical of concern? So I think what you're saying is really helpful in the sense that try to be as broad as possible in the filter that you're looking for. Try to see what works for your region and really if you're taking action, you're doing something to lower your body burden, your chemical body burden. So you're maybe not able to do everything, your ability to sort of lower the burden is also going to be helpful in some ways. Is that accurate? Yes, I'm
1: so glad you said that, because I think it's really important to emphasize that it's not about being perfect, that it's actually not possible to completely avoid being exposed to harmful chemicals in our environment. Because They're just sort of everywhere. When I was writing my book, I interviewed lots of researchers who dedicated their lives work to this issue. And they said, I have a PhD in this subject matter and even I cannot completely protect my kids from these chemicals, even knowing everything there is to know about them because they're just impossible to avoid. So it's not about being perfect. It's about taking the steps that are accessible to you and kind of overall reducing your exposure where you can, where it's feasible. And then I also want to emphasize that it's not fair to ask us to do this, especially people who are parents, especially moms who have a ton on their plate and are busy. We really need to push for systemic changes and policies and regulations and do a better job of regulating these chemicals so that everyone is safer. And other parts of the world are doing a much better job of this than the United States. So we don't have to start from scratch, right? There are lots of blueprints out there for how we can do a better job of regulating these chemicals so that we don't have to worry so much about Every single thing our teenagers are using and our tap water, and it's a problem we can't totally shop our way out of as individual consumers. So we really need to push for
0: systemic changes. I think that that is such a major point, and I'm glad you brought that up. It just feels like it's not fair. A lot of us are very pressed for time to do basic things. And many of us are already pressed for the capacity, the financial capacity to do some of these things. So, you know, I know as a mom who is very invested in thinking about the chemicals I'm bringing into my home, as a physician who kind of knows somewhat about some of the long-term risks, even so when I have my daughter in front of me and I'm out of diapers, It's going to be really hard for me to wait for that order of the bamboo, you know, chemical free or the least possible chemical type of diaper. I'm going to just find what's at hand. And so I think it's such an important point to emphasize that there are other places in the world where there are much stronger regulations around what people can be exposed to, what we allow our environment to be. Sort of saturated with. And along with thinking about what you can do in your own home, if there is a capacity to do something outside of that sphere, then this is a great place to think about taking action. Absolutely. Yeah. I
1: think in an ideal world, anything you could buy at the store for your child would be safe, right? That doesn't seem like a crazy thing to ask. I think you're exactly right in saying that if we have the capacity, to go beyond just our own households and push our regulators to do a better job, it would be really helpful.
0: So I am gonna have to have you come back to talk to us about air and food. So before we finish our time today, I would love to talk to you about greenwashing. What are some of the things, so besides using some of these tools that can help us be a little bit more comfortable thinking about what to bring into our homes, If you're out there in the grocery store or wherever you're doing your shopping and you see a product, what's a good way to not succumb to greenwashing?
1: That's such a great question. And it can be really tricky because that's another thing where, you know, for something for food to be labeled organic, it's a really high bar for them to clear, right? And it's very strictly regulated. So for food products, if they're labeled organic, you can feel confident that they're actually free of pesticides, but for the most part, but when it comes to things like cosmetics, it's a little looser in terms of labeling and what brands can claim. And so I think the best way is to use a tool like the one I mentioned earlier there are a couple of additional ones. The anti-cancer lifestyle program has a bunch of free online resources about how to choose safer cosmetics. There's a marketplace called Black and Green. That's all local artisans or companies that are owned by people of color. That is less toxic products marketed toward people of color. But the best way is really to find that it's free from harmful ingredients. And the best way to do that is by using one of these resources.
0: I'm glad you mentioned black and green because we know that there's health inequities in chemical exposures in our personal care products as well, not to mention our environments and where we live. And again, there's a lot of environmental injustice that we have to account for as well, which potentially is leading to or has some part to play in the disparities in cancer risk for African American and Hispanic populations in this country.
1: That's right. Yeah. Personal care products marketed toward women of color in particular tend to be a lot more toxic than products marketed toward white women and women of color statistically use a higher number and spend more money on personal care products and cosmetics than their white counterparts. So this is definitely a big issue that I write about pretty extensively in the book. It's definitely something that environmental health researchers are starting to pay more attention to.
0: This has been such a great conversation. I know that I already have several actionable things that I'm going to do. Do you want to close us out with any other bite-sized action items that someone listening today could complete today, tomorrow, in the short term? Yeah. So
1: there are a couple of really easy ways to help kind of level this up from just making changes in our individual households to pushing for bigger picture change that could make all of us safer. The first one is following some of the groups that are doing this advocacy work all day, every day on social media so that if there's a petition to sign or a pesticide ban to vote on or a timely need to call lawmakers and urge them to take action, you know about it as it's happening. And so some of those groups, I list a whole bunch of them in the appendix of my book, but a couple big ones that are good and easy to follow are the Cancer Free Economy Network, Silent Spring Institute, and the Children's Environmental Health Network. The other thing that I often advise is if you're making a switch in your personal care products, you can really amplify the impact of that choice by letting the companies know. So if you've been using the same hand cream your whole life, because it's your favorite hand cream, and you find out that it has some ingredients in it that might be raising your cancer risk, so you decide to switch to a less toxic version, you can amplify the impact of that choice by just taking a few extra minutes to let the company know, hey, I love this hand cream I've been using it my whole life. I'm gonna stop using it because it includes these ingredients. And then also letting company B know, hey, I switched to your product. Thank you for not using these ingredients. Companies very rarely hear from consumers. And so when they do, they tend to take notice, or even if you do that on Twitter or in a more public format, that can also apply some additional public pressure. So those are some quick ways to kind of level up the personal individual actions to help push for changes that could keep all of us safer.
0: Wow. Thank you so, so much for being with us today. We've talked with Christina Marusek about environmental health and easy swaps that we can make in our day-to-day life to lower our cancer risk and lower our body burdens of certain types of chemicals. I'm really going to walk away from this conversation, one- with tools that I can use today to make some of these swaps. And then two, to become a better communicator about these changes. I think that that is such an important point that you make is that it's really impactful to make these changes in your home but if you communicate these changes and why you've made them to your friends and you know, to these corporations, it seems like the impact can be just so much more. So I really appreciate these tips. To find out more information about Christina Morosic, visit Christina, that's Christina with a K, com. K-R-I-S-T-I-N-A-M-E. A-R-U-S-I-C.com. She's also on Twitter at Christina writes, Thank you for listening. Please take a moment to follow, rate, and review this podcast on your favorite listening platform. If you'd like to send me an email about topics you're interested in or questions for future guests, please send me a note at podcast at webmd.net. This is Dr. Neha Batak for the WebMD Health Discovered Podcast.